Hi, I'm Sean O. McCarthy, founding editor of the Comics Comic. Found wherever you can type the Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people's dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. I first met Alex Edelman when he was just a teenager, aspiring to become a stand-up comedian while already scoring a lucrative internship with the Boston Red Sox. He achieved much throughout his 20s. A new face at Montreal's Just for Laughs, multiple performances on Conan, co-founded the Off the Wall Comedy Club in Jerusalem, wrote on The Great Indoors on CBS, opened on tour for the likes of Beck, wrote and produced the YouTube benefit Saturday Night Seder, raising millions for COVID relief. He's written and starred in three hit stage shows in London and at the Edinburgh Fringe. His first, Millennial, won him the Best Newcomer Award. His third, Just For Us, launches its first proper U.S. run in New York City in December 2021 at the Cherry Lane Theater. Directed by Adam Brace and presented by Mike Barbuglia, Just For Us recounts what happened when Edelman decided to attend a meeting of white nationalists in New York City so he could face anti-Semitism, well, in the face. Edelman talked with me about growing up and finding his comedic voice, with plenty of shout-outs to the comedians and others who've helped him along the way. If you like this conversation, please consider subscribing to my substack called Piffany at piffany.substack.com so you can read bonus commentary on this episode, as well as more comedy news and insights. Thanks in advance, and now that that's out of the way, let's get to it! So, Alex Edelman, last things first. If you were offered a front office job with the Red Sox today, but you had to give up your comedy career, would you take the deal? Um, it wouldn't even take me five seconds to say no. <laughs> it, wouldn't, it wouldn't even. You remember me from when I was still working at the Red Sox, basically. Yes. When I was a kid. But um, no, I, I wouldn't. Uh, I wouldn't do that. I appreciate uh, baseball, and but I I think that that the Red Sox um, I've changed, and the Red Sox has changed. Which isn't to say I'll never work in baseball again. I would love to, after a wonderfully fruitful comedy career, go back to a career in baseball. But um, I think it would be one that's a little more holistic, and mm-hmm. one that's maybe suited to minor league baseball or suited to. Um, like something fun and silly and 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 goofy, like the way um, there's a guy named Mike Vec, whose father Bill Vec owned a whole bunch of baseball teams, and Mike runs his baseball teams with Bill Murray, and does it in a goofy way. So look, the comedy to baseball pipeline is well established with Bill Murray. So, <laughs> uh, so I would so I would love that, and I still keep my hand in with a couple of minor league baseball teams, and a little uh, I do a little like, you know behind uh, the back consulting and chatting with, with some baseball folks. So I'm still a little involved in baseball. Right. And the baseball name you, you name drop, Bill Vec, legendary goofball. Oh, yeah, of course. Send a midget to the plate to bat. Have, Eddie Gadel was the name of the midget. That's how you know you're tuned to baseball. Had, and, had, his, had his team dress in shorts. Yes. And, you know, by the way, so yesterday – I bought this. We don't have much sports memorabilia in the house, but I bought this online. A signed portrait of Ted Williams. Oh. 
And Hannah, my girlfriend, was like, we'll save that for when you get in office. <laughs> like, you're, like, that's not going up in this house. And I'm like, yeah, you're right. That's, uh, that's. Wait, was that uh, your, your Beck money? Oh, right. yeah, my Beck money. <laughs> your <laughs> Beck money? You were, oh, you were. Beck, you can make, you make, you know, everybody knows that opening for bands is where the money is. <laughs> I was surprised that, that, that bands still had comedians over opening for them and comedians still chose to open for bands when I saw you were opening for Beck. You know, what's rare is there's a particularly maverick sect of musicians and most of them are, uh, most of them are folks like St. Vincent recently had Allie McCoskey open for her. Okay. Um, and, you know, this isn't actually my first time doing Beck. And, I mean, Bobcat Goldthwait used to open for Nirvana. Like, I realized that those days are past, <laughs> but fans love it because there's no load in. And audiences remember it more than they remember some, like, no-name band that, you know, it's a really good idea, and it's a lot of fun. And I got a bunch of, like, really nice new fans who are, like, Beck fans, which is so sweet. So what would the 15-year-old Alex Edelman think of... of of 2021 Alex Edelman. He'd be so excited that he has a a nice girlfriend. He'd be so excited that he lives in his own apartment and not with his parents. He'd be very disappointed that we aren't full-time working in baseball. He'd be um, bemused but happy about his level of religiosity He'd be so excited that he got to meet Robin Williams, so dismayed that he hasn't met Steve Martin, so thrilled that he's met Mel Brooks. And he, you know, if, if I, if I said like, Hey, you pay your rent with comedy, he'd be like, Oh my God, that's so cool. But you know, (laughs) my girlfriend just laughed at me from the other room, but it is, I really, you you remember me hanging well, out. That's, that's why I say because you were what fifteen or sixteen when you seemed so excited to meet me, and I was like, "Why? Why?" Was, you know, like there were there were you know, and remain too. By the way, Sean, so excited too. <laughs> like, like I grew up in the best comedy scene in the country at the best time. If you think about the sheer tonnage of working comics who were sort of emerging. Maybe Chicago at the time gave it a run for its money, but, you know, it was very cool. Like, a lot of those guys that, you know, became stalwarts were... But also, by the way, I was not... I was still incubating as a comic. Like, the comics that I gravitated to were much more like the Josh Gondelman, uh, Gary Goldman types. Uh, and, you know, they weren't the predominant comics in Boston. There were a bunch of comics that really weren't for me. And I feel like I picked up some bad habits that took a couple of years to dispel. But yeah, I mean, I really loved comedy and Boston was a great place to love comedy. People would come through. My first show ever was a comics come home. I mean, like the fact that once a year, Dennis Leary brings the best comics in the country and puts them in a huge arena and it's a very comedy forward lineup. Like there are a couple of comics who are, you know, famous names, but there are also a lot of great working comics like Tony V and, you know, the first year I saw it, like there was Jim Lilletta and, you know, Don Gavin and uh, Lenny Clark. And so like, 
Those guys were what's so funny. <laughs> How you leaned into the pronunciation of Lenny Clark. Oh yeah, Lenny Clark. I just because when I see him in my mind, I see him being introduced introduced by Mike on stage. <laughs> it's like you know this guy, you love him, it's Lenny Clark. Also, Kevin Knox, remember Noxie? Oh yeah. I mean, like those guys were great uh, mentors to me, and they were um, people I seriously idolized, and so. Kevin Knox was the wild man of comedy, wasn't that his? A wild man of comedy with big long hair, but uh, by the time I met him, he was bald from all the cancer. Right. But he was. Uh, but you know, those guys were so uh, were such big parts of my 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 teenage years, and like the comedy connection in Boston, and you know, I was just at the Wilbur on Friday opening for Goldman, and two weeks before that, I was at the Wilbur opening for Berbiglia. And those are both guys that, you know, I saw the connection or something and, and just totally worshipped. So, like, it is a nice, uh, it is a nice little thing for me. Was it, me. was it tough to get into the comedy connection as a teenager? No, I mean, yes and no. There were two guys who worked the door, and one of them, I don't know what he's up to, but his name was Mike Hansen, and he was lovely. Tall, blonde kid from New Hampshire. He would let me in. And also Adam Genovizian, who's an agent in ICM. Oh, now. yeah, Adam. He would let me in. And... If I showed up and I, and also there was a woman who worked the front door whose name I think was Julia or Juliet. And if either of those three people were working, I stood a decent shot of getting into the connection. And then Ryan Cott got to know me and he would let me, you know, behave myself. But once through watching from the back that, you know, remember the back corner near the uh, like hallway? Right. Near the hallway to go back to the back bar. Yeah. To go back to the back bar. I was standing there. And these two cops came in, and I was underage, and Ryan was like, you, down the hallway. <laughs> and, and, like, I had to go, like, hide in the back bar until the cops. <laughs> right, Ryan was the booker, right? Ryan was the manager, but he booked occasionally, like, you know, the open mics. Oh, right, but, no, yeah, he wasn't booking the headliners, but he was booking, like, the... Yeah, the he, was, he was fairly good to me. I was not a good comic, so it was nice of him to sort of, like, encourage... I had a couple of good sets, but I wasn't a good comic. And, and he... Uh, he really fostered, um, you know, I ran into him at Moon Tower Comedy Festival a couple of weeks ago with my, you know, with my girlfriend, him and Tobin. And I, I wanted to be like, you know, hey, this is, you know, these guys, <laughs> these guys are the reasons uh, I'm a comic. It's, it's, they were, they, you know, they just let a kid who want to hang around, hang around, which is like really which was really nice. And also there were some really horrible people in the comedy scene t- too, who treated me terribly and uh, uh, bullied me. And um, because I was such a young guy and, uh, and so it was important to have those people who were looking out for me and, uh, and yeah, a bunch of those guys who looked out for me, they're still in comedy and they're still doing it. Like Mike Kaplan always looked out for me. Joe List always looked out for me. Dan Bolger, uh, who is closest to my age of everyone, who is still like, you know, for my money, like one of the f- five or six funniest comics working period. Like he's so good. And, and so like Alvin David, you know, Alvin would drag me oh, around. Right. Like David. I haven't heard that name in a while. Yeah. I mean, by the way, Alvin David was not just a comic who looked out for me, but he was also a waiter at the cheesecake factory that <laughs> I took it. And I took a date in there once I was in like high school. And I walked in the Cheesecake Factory and Alvin was the waiter and I barely had enough money to pay for, I didn't bring enough, I didn't bring enough 
and cash and Alvin was like just like I got you baby if you don't have enough money for this I got I had enough I had barely enough for like bathroom and tip but like he was so sweet and they were all really good to me I just had a all the comics with like four or five notable exceptions whose names I won't say because it would be like you know crappy of me at this point to like Mm -hmm. single those guys out but like and also a bunch of them would apologize a couple of days later be like hey when I did that thing that was shitty or you know when I said that thing that was shitty but but it was awesome sorry I'm rambling now because I'm like fondly reminiscing in in a way I don't usually get to well the amazing thing to me other than the fact that you were so young and so deeply invested in comedy was that you also somehow managed to be working for the Boston Red Sox at a time when they were finally experiencing success. Well, maybe that's a cause and effect thing, Sean. Maybe I'm the reason. (laughs) You tell me. No, I wasn't, but it was, you know what it was? Boston was a great place to grow up in that time. And and it was a place where you could show up and um, is a place that you can show up and do stuff and participate and people would let you. And I don't know if the world is like that anymore, like a small to medium sized city like Boston, where you could like, I would rollerblade to everything. You can't do that in like New York or Los Angeles. It's not really, you know, good people would look at you funny, but you could do it. New York more than New York, more than LA, but it was a place you could show up. And I did a lot of showing up. And for the most part, there were good people everywhere who let me stay. And like, I was really interested in a lot of stuff. Like, you know, I went to a lot of, classes at Harvard that I wasn't in and just sat there and watched. Like it was because there was a time you could just show up and do stuff. And, and uh, the Red Sox was a perfect example. I just showed up and kept showing up and kept asking and kept not taking, you know, no for an answer. And like, by the way, some of that might be uh, one of those things that's a superpower when you're a kid that's annoying as an adult. (laughs) <laughs> right? Like continuously or like annoying as a kid too. Right. Like mm-hmm. I'm sure not everyone was psyched that like this kid kept showing up at like the Harrell's open mic or something like that and being not good and still insisting and trying to get five minutes. But so, I imagine there'd be thousands of kids showing up at Fenway park saying, <laughs> please let, please let me do anything. So not all of them actually get to do Well, you always need a person who's willing to look at you right. There's a woman named Colleen Riley who worked at the Red Sox, and Colleen still lives in Boston, and she came to the show at the Wilbur. She's uh, friends with me and now Gary because I introduced them, and Colleen was the person that when I was 12 years old, I rollerbladed up to her on the street, which is so annoying, and I went, can I get in, you know, Al Mooney, who is the groundskeeper, Al won't let me in. And she just, you know, she let me come and, you know, and kept me there. And then when it came time for them to, you know, think of someone for a a job, she was like, how about that annoying kid who keeps coming around? (laughs) Really? Yeah. It was Colleen, right? It was this one person single-handedly. And then there were like four or five other people. And I remember all of them. There's a woman, Marcita Thompson, Sarah McKenna, who still works there as the head of fan services. Um, Marty Fuller, who now works in the Boston Public School District and writes freelance about, you know. And, and by the way, a lot of these people were like, almost everyone was a woman or many of them were women of color. And um, there were a few, you know, and I felt really like, I don't know, excited by 
just uh, being in this like new milieu of, uh, of like young energetic baseball fans and Marcita and Marty uh, just gave me a lot of like opportunity and responsibility and free wave. And of course, Larry and I became friendly with Larry Lucchino, who was the president of the Red Sox for a long time and still is one of my, you know, closest, you know, who's like still a pretty serious mentor to me. What was your job title? When you when you had an actual job. it changed it changed every six months. Dr. Charles Steinberg, who became my superior superior, they were just like in 2006. They were like, "You work for Charles now. Whatever Charles wants you to do, you do." And so I worked for Charles for 06 and 07. That my title sometimes said fan services coordinator, fan service consultant. Once Charles, as a joke in 2006, called me a diplomat, and it stuck. And I have a pass somewhere that says Alex Edelman, you know, it's my employee pass and it says diplomat underneath it. <laughs> but so uh, when I moved over to the uh, Dodgers with him in 2008, I was officially uh, a fan, uh, a fan service coordinator or a fan service consultant or something. And then, and then more nebulously referred to it as like public relations associate or public relations coordinator. But by the way, these were like glorified internships, Sean. These were internships with lots of fluidity and access. Right, but you're still there when they win the World Series, right, in 2007? It was, it was so sick, yeah. I was actually in rabbinical seminary in, in Israel when, when they made it to the World Series, and I flew home, which the rabbis were not excited about. But I, got, <laughs> I got to go to Game 4 in Colorado. I got to watch them win the World Series, and like, go to the party, and then the rabbi called my mom. <laughs> it's like, you need to send him back. My mom, relishing the opportunity, went, well, he's going to ride in the parade, and then he'll come home, and then he'll come back to Israel. So, like... That's a good mom. That's a good mom. It's a really good mom. It's such a good mom, actually. And, you know, I think my parents sort of enjoyed it by the end. They're not baseball fans, so they were kind of, like, bemused when I started, like, falling in love with baseball. But, you know, these... The books behind me are, like novels, World War II books, baseball, Jewish books, and and a huge tonnage of comedy books. And I think that probably represents me rather rather well. But yeah, I had good parents too, which were parents who were like per, permissive when they needed to be and restrictive um, when they needed to be. And there was a lot of dialogue about w- what to be and when. Yeah, you mentioned Israel. And when I left Boston for New York City, the next thing I heard about you or from you was an email or a Facebook message where you were telling me that you were in Israel and, and doing comedy and other things. And I was like, what, what is happening to young Alex Edelman? Why? Yeah. I, Why is he I, like starting a comedy club in Jerusalem? What is happening? I was really interested in comedy, but I also am like, really look, it's still who I am. I'm still, you know, interested in comedy and and my Judaism and in fact that blending the two finally and talking about my Judaism in a more substantial way is what what's led to this show and what's you know led to I guess greater success for me because you know comedy I don't know I, I think the I think the perfect physical setting that reflects my interior is probably a kid in rabbinical school who's starting a comedy club like that's and going home for the world series. Like those are the, those are the, that's the perfect set of three for Alex Edelman. 
But, uh, but yeah, I was in rabbinical standard for, by the way, modern Orthodox Jews, which is what, you know, what I am to spend a year, um, after high school in Jerusalem. It's not like crazy special thing. Okay. And so, uh, and so I did it and got really into, you know, got really into, uh, also it's where I started to become a little bit of a better comic where I shed some of the bad habits of, um, Boston, like edgy Boston comedy. Um, that didn't happen fully until I got, until I, uh, studied abroad in the UK. But I, I think, I think travel's always been my friend in terms of like, growing as an artist and a person. And so because of that, even in the pandemic, you know, I spent a lot of time in LA hiking and I dragged my girlfriend to Zion in the middle of the pandemic. Cause that was outside and pretty COVID safe. So my, my girlfriend and I went to Zion. Isn't it wonderful? Southern. I mean, the Mormons uh, or the church of Latter-day Saints as they prefer to be called. You can you can say a lot of, of of trash talk about them, but they knew what they were doing when they stopped in Utah. Oh man, it's beautiful! And by the way, we've been to Salt Lake City twice in the pandemic, really, because my brother's living there, and it is just like the most stunning place and the most stunning people. And um, but yeah, like I'm I'm an inveterate traveler, which isn't to say that I'm not exa- completely exhausted by the amount of travel that I have to do. But I'm psyched to be you know I'll be back in New York for a month doing this show, right? And like. Really psyched. Oh, I'm really psyched by this, you know. You know, you you mentioned how it was it was the UK where you found your voice. And it just reminds me that when you were first in New York City, I remember seeing you a few times and it was always with with Gary Goleman. And he would like vouch for you and get you a guest set. And you were still so young and still so raw on stage. And looking back on that now, I I I wonder just how vital it was to have someone like Gary Gallman in your corner, taking you under his wing, vouching for you when you were still kind of struggling to figure out who you were as a comedian. Huge. Incalculable. For five for five or six good reasons, but one, you need someone to push you to keep going. Two, you need you need someone to tell others that they believe in you. Um, three, you need someone that you can watch and follow because four, you need to have extremely high standards for yourself. Like whenever anyone asks me like advice for new comics, as someone who was a new comic for a long time and the fact that they hadn't quite figured it out yet, I was like, if you have really high standards for yourself, you'll hit those standards. Like everyone gets to where they want to go creatively as long as they like really churn towards it. Everybody does. Like the, if you, if you aim for a goal creatively and, and move towards it, you, you can like it will happen. So you just need to make sure that you're aiming for something like really special. And Goldman is, you know, one of the most special comics in the country, in the world. And so, you know, he was a great example to me. And, uh, and five, you need to have peers that you just love being amongst, right? You need to have like someone who you want to be proud of you that you'll call, or at least for me, maybe not ever, maybe people who are more secure in themselves just do it for, but like, 
you know, I idolize comedians so much that, you know, I said to a friend of mine that I think the reason I do this is so that I can sit at a table with my favorite comics and call myself a peer. Like I really do kind of believe that. Like, I think I've believed that since I was 16 years old and, um, and I'm thrilled to, you know, Colin Quinn was the first solo show I saw in New York city. And I saw long story short, it was amazing. And then, you know, I went to see Colin's latest show, Lortel. And afterwards he's like talking to me, like, you know, like another comic. Mm. And I was like, you know, I was felling like, this is a, this is a <laughs> fucking genius. And this is a guy who I really respect with a distinct point of view that isn't exactly like mine, but having a Gary Goldman to, to vouch for you, by the way, Gary and I are still like really close friends and he still does the same things for me that he did when I was 16 which is that he will call me on jokes that are bad. Mm-hmm. He will, um, it's, which is super vitally important. It's so important. Like you need someone who will do that for you. And, um, and I'll, I'll always, uh, I'll always love him for it. And the other day I saw him and I was pitched it. I pitched him a joke I was thinking of. And he lit into me for it because it was funny, but it was from the wrong perspective. And like, you know, you need people who won't let you off the hook for that. Like Goldman doesn't let me off the hook for anything. Daniel Sloss, who's a British comic, he doesn't let me off the hook for anything. Or sorry, he's he's Scottish. I should, right. I mean, he's British, but I'd say he's, Scott, he's Scottish. He's more Scottish than British. Definitely. Oh, yeah. I mean, and, and like, even my girlfriend is a brilliant comic and she, you know, uh, she doesn't let me off the hook for, for anything. You need those people in your life who will like push you. And, and ultimately you follow your own gut, but, but like I, Josie Long, who's another British comic, Josie, like Josie would vouch for me big time. Like that's a, you, you need those people who see something in you, especially when you don't see it. Cause it's easy when you're established, but. Oh man, I just love Gary Goldman and mm-hmm. um he's very lovable. He is, but also like he's uncompromising. So yeah. what was it about the UK then that made everything kind of click into place for you? Was it the uh-huh. the setting? Was it the people? Like you mentioned there were people like Josie and, and Daniel. Something to do with them and something to do with me. First of all, it's hard to establish yourself in the place where you incubate. Right. Like it's hard to, to sort of, people will always see you as a kid in some ways. Um, but also I was a senior in college and I was doing comedy. I wasn't very proud of, but I was doing okay, which was sort of the goal, right? Like you, 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 uh, you do comedy to do okay, but I wasn't really proud of it. And then I moved to the UK and I, cause also I was being exposed to pretty much only New York city club comedy, which was a great aesthetic, but the content wasn't exactly for me. Um, there wasn't, there was a burgeoning alt scene, but that had like a coolness barrier to entry that I couldn't quite get into. Um, but it felt like when I went to the UK, people sort of accepted me a little more. And also I saw comics doing comedy in ways that were really different, really challenging the form. 
in in like aesthetic and content. I saw comics like Stuart Lee and Bridget Christie and, and Josie and um and a bunch of sketch comics that I worshipped uh as well. And I think a lot of those influences just really were brought to bear on me. And also I was like I always had a sense that if I could do an hour, I could get people to recognize that I was getting somewhere. And in the UK, there was easier to do an hour or the hour was more of a thing that any comic could do instead of just, you know, these huge comedians, these headlining comics. And so I sort of got, I sort of got there because of that. But, but also Josie, there was like a turning point. Um, I wasn't in this, Josie had this night called Lost Treasures of the Black Heart where people would, um, go on stage and talk about um, forgotten heroes or obscure items. And I just went up and did a regular set and the audience reaction was nice because they were warm, but it wasn't in the spirit of the night. And Josie was kind enough to let me come back a few weeks later and, and do a set that was in the spirit of the night. And that was sort of a turning point for me where I, I just kind of, kind of got there, but it had a lot to do with the zeitgeist there. It had a lot to do with the Soho theater on Dean street in, in London where, you know, I went to the first preview of Fleabag, like Phoebe Waller-Bridge was, a was also like a big, a big reason for me. Um, I slept on Phoebe's mom's couch for a while. Like, like that community was very supportive and encouraging of me figuring out what I needed to do. And uh, I owe them everything also. If you're listening to this podcast, basically you're like, man, Alex Edelman owes a lot of people a lot of stuff, and that's totally. <laughs> but they can't they can't take your best newcomer award from you that you that you keep. Yeah, but even then, you know, like my friend Dan Schreiber let me put up previews for that show in his living room, and you know, and and people, my friend Ross McDonald, who's a musician who I met in the UK, talked me through all the anxieties of that. I made a bunch of like really cool, unlikely friends. And it was my first time as an adult, basically doing stuff like it was just super magical. And, uh, I don't know. I owe it. I owe all of those things to, uh, to other people. Did, did that, uh, did that success at the, at the Edinburgh fringe when you won best newcomer for millennial, did that, did that give you enough juice, enough buzz, enough confidence to go, okay, I'm ready to to come back and, and give America a, a decent shot. Yeah. Um, this was my first solo show in New York. I mean, like, I think I've always viewed myself as a comic who was just grateful to work wherever the work was I went. Mm-hmm. So I worked a lot in England and a lot in Australia, and I have worked in the U.S. I've been steadily headlining since 2016 or 2015, but – it wasn't an immediate thing, Sean. Like I was, was working, you know, part-time jobs and day jobs until, you know, until millennial won that award. So I guess the money from that award was what let me quit and pursue comedy full time. But I don't know that it broke me in America. It got me an agent and a manager, which was, um, it got me an agent, which was really, I already had a manager actually, but, but it got me an agent that, who's who's been wonderful and has gotten me consistent work in the u.s since then but uh was that what got you in the door for tv 
Yeah. He got me in the door for TV writing when I wrote on The Great Indoors and, and, and some stuff. But stand-up has always been a really great equalizer for um, for not just me, but uh, other comics who, mm-hmm. you know. But, I, you know, I also like different communities. Like, I'm really fascinated by the, you know, I'm in love with people who love comedy. So the comedy community is wonderful to me. But also, like, there's the theater community, the TV community, even the even the sports community, like I'm really, and the media community, like I'm interested in all of those disparate, you know, groups of people and their dis and, and their different viewpoints. Because I always think that maybe getting in there somewhere will unlock something special for me. Does a gig like Saturday Night Cedar? Does that kind of like is that the Venn diagram where they all kind of come together? A thousand percent. Like it's the best thing I've ever done. Saturday Night Cedar. It was like a, you know, if you're listening, you don't know what it is a couple of um, friends of mine and myself, all Jews and some non-Jewish Passover enthusiasts made (laughs) online. Non-Jew Passover enthusiasts. Yeah. Non-Jewish, you know, non-Jews, non-Jews helped. And we made a online Passover Seder at the beginning of the pandemic. And it was like a 70 minute special. And we raised like three and a half million dollars for COVID relief. And like, it's the best thing I've ever been a part of because it was, you know, all these people from different communities coming together. Like that Venn diagram is like creatives who are interested in Judaism and wanting to do something um, uh, interesting with that love. So, so yeah, that's actually the perfect example of that Venn diagram. But I'm also hoping that like this show at the Cherry Lane will sort of diversify my community. Like the people that are coming to the show opening night or like some people are from theater. Some people are from music. Some people are from comedy. Some people are Jews. Some people are my cousins. Like, you know, it's like a Venn diagram of every little facet of my life. Well, in that show, it's called just for us, but it's been, it's been part of you for how many years now? I mean, I, I first I remember mean, you telling me about it pre pandemic. maybe 2018. Yeah. I mean, it's my best work so far. Like it's about, I went to this meeting of white nationalists in Queens and I sat there for an hour. Look, Sean, like I said, it's all just showing up, you know, (laughs) you just show up and uh, sat there for an hour. And that's what the show is about. I mean, there's a lot more about it, but also like I kind of leaned away from my Judaism for a long time, stand up wise, because I didn't want to just be like the Jewish comic. Mm hmm. But I guess this is me kind of leaning into it. And Judaism, maybe you can't tell from, like, the menorah and the stack of yarmulkes in my, like, you know, prayer boxes behind me, my tefillin. Like, it's a big part of who I am. And so, like, kind of leaning into it yielded some nice, uh, like, it's in, in, it's introspective and in the right way for a solo show. And that's, I think, what drew Birbiglia to it. And, and, um, and also I really love the show, like millennial, I, I loved doing and my second show, everything handed to you was, was wonderful. And maybe I'll do those shows again one day, but this is a show that I'll do until I die. If people will let me like, I just really love this show. And also this is its first U S run. Like it did really nice, um, performances at the bell house for New York comedy festival and, and it's something I'm really proud of, but, uh, right. And you had done it in Melbourne and Edinburgh. 
and, and just relax in Montreal right. pandemic. Yeah. And so this is sort of the culmination of it. Although maybe it'll tour. I, I don't know. Like the room in the same venue as me, um, one of the, at the Pleasance in Edinburgh also hosted Jackie Novak doing Get On Your Knees. So I've been doing the show for about a shade less time than Jackie's been doing hers. Okay. But also she's a wonderful like role model for me. Like when I, when I came back from, uh, from England in 2012 after college, I uh, did a bunch of her and Kate Berlant shows at Kate shop and she's always been one of my favorites. So, you know, this is the only show Mike has produced besides get on your knees. So, uh, so hopefully it follows a performance arc at least. Uh, How has the show changed now that you're revisiting it after, you know, we all took a time out last year. Honestly, lots of material, like different, uh, different things seemed important to me through the filter of my own Judaism. So, and different things felt like it needed real estate in the show. And also having Berbiglia's eyes on it. Like, what are you not going to use notes from the best there is (laughs) at this thing? Like I I have to use my, you know, Berbiglia gave phenomenal notes and it used to be a sort of blend of, of, of things that were far flung because I didn't want to put too much weight on the central story. And Rebigley encouraged me to sort of push out some of the other things and, and just kind of lean into that. And, uh, and, and also be a little more focused and be a little more strategic with the times that we step out of the room. And he got rid of lazy jokes still make their way, you know, into my, into my comedy, they're jokes that are way better than the jokes that I was doing, you know, five, six years ago, but they're mm-hmm. still, sometimes what gets a laugh or even a really good laugh is a disappointment to an audience. It's subliminal. They just go, that's a shame that he picked that low hanging fruit. But so, so Rubiglia and my director, Adam Brace, um, who I met at the Soho in, you know, 2012 when I was a, you know, we sat next to each other at the first preview of Fleabag. Um, Adam and, and Mike gave some great notes. They're still trying to push um, some really good notes uh, towards me and <laughs> we discussed them. And, and also Trump not being president anymore had a, uh, a, a different thing. And, and also I feel different responsibilities now as a comic and as a person. So, so yeah, sorry. A lot of it has changed. Um, in small ways, um, the gut of the show is still, um, the same. The person performing it is, you know, that there's a, this is so pretentious, but there's a quote from this guy, Heraclitus, the, uh, this Greek, he said, a a man can't step in the same river twice for he is not the same man and is not the same river. Yes. That's I was hoping that was the quote you were quoting. Yeah. Yeah. Heraclitus, who famously said, what's up? But, uh, <laughs> no, you, yeah. picked, you picked the right quote from him. Yeah, yeah, what's up? <laughs> you know those, <laughs> those ads Heraclitus wrote for the Super Bowl in the 90s? But, uh, but yeah, I, I mean, a lot, of it, a lot of stuff has changed because you don't take a year and a half off something 
and think about it every day for a year and a half. Like I thought about, like I was on a tour touring the show in the UK when COVID happened. I still owe the UK like four or five shows that have to be rescheduled. Mm. Like that's going to have to happen. And it feels like unfinished business. And like I said, I love doing the show and I'm just absolutely gutted that I had to take a nap for a year and a half, but I have the most ideal auspices for it coming out of the pandemic. Berbiglia, like it's my, it's my fucking Berbiglia. Like he's the, he's like one of the best in the world at this. If not the best, like, is there a, if there's a better person doing solo shows right now, I haven't, I, I don't know who they are. He unquestionably thinks about it more than anyone I've ever met, right? Like conversations with Riglia just belie this huge reservoir of knowledge. Right. Well, it's a different muscle than do it than putting together a typical one-hour stand-up show. Sure, but I do think the best stand-up specials have an element of that that connects an hour for a way because people don't have the attention span for an hour now, even for their favorite comedians. They just don't. So, like sometimes I watch a comic do an hour killing all the way through and I went to some tapings of of a series of specials that were all being taped in the same place and about 30 minutes into into one of the tapings, crowd's dying and I thought to myself, like, this is where the audience member will switch off the show Mm. on, like, television because there, you know there needs to be something that holds everything together, we're not or the jokes need to be so perfect that they just don't, um that you just are hanging on to see what comes next. Like, um, but I would even argue that like that Brian Regan's jokes and Sebastian Maniscalco's jokes and Taylor Tomlinson's jokes and Maria Bamford's jokes and Dave Chappelle's early Dave Chappelle jokes, the specials where there's not a clear through line, they all hang together in a really um, nice way because they have a, distinctive point of view that that paints a really nice portrait of the of the joke teller and they really and and the best specials from those comics have that thing in in common with each other and when i work on other people's specials sometimes i consult on other people's specials you know it's something to look out for because audiences will laugh at you if they love you and you technically do jokes, but if you want to really hold people together, it needs to be, um, it needs to be something that just like really, it, it needs to be something that has a little X factor, I think. Or at least needs to be able to be lip synced on TikTok. Or yeah, I mean, that's huge. If you can get something that's lip syncable on TikTok, then you're just golden. You just made it. <laughs> well, I, uh, Alex, I, uh, I look forward to seeing the new version of just for us. Well, I'm psyched for I'm psyched for you to see it too, man. Because you've known me such a long time. Like you, yeah. I well, that's the other thing I want to say is it's been a pleasure to watch you grow up as both a human being and as a comedian. Because uh, I because I remember that 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 little scrawny kid who who ran up to me outside uh, Dick Doherty's Beantown Vault, and now I get to see well. He's all grown up. Well, dude, that's so nice, man. And, and, and thank you so much for taking the time to, uh, to have me on. And, uh, uh, it's just, it's really nice. Like I have the 15 year old me would be very, uh, thrilled by 
but pretty much everything. He'd be dismayed by a couple of things, but, but pretty. <laughs> but also, that kid was like a pretty was a was a was a dumb virgin who couldn't look anyone in the eye or shake a hand. So so screw so screw that kid. I owe I owe him nothing. <laughs> <laughs> awesome! Thank you so much, Alex. Thanks, buddy. I'll talk to you soon. This episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was post-produced by Alex Brazell at Showbiz Studios. The music was by Camille Harris and Shockwave, logo by Giggle Chick. If you enjoyed listening, please check out my Substack called Piffany at piffany.substack.com for transcripts, bonus commentary, and expert analysis about comedy, show business, and more. I'm your host, Sean O. McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.